The sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Perhaps you remember the story. Uh, it was in Suffolk, England. A man by the name of Peter Watling was working in his field, and he, uh, he misplaced his hammer. Couldn't find his hammer in the field, and so he, he grabbed a friend, Eric Laws, who had one of those metal detector things, and, and he went in search of the hammer. Uh, but what he found, instead of the hammer, was the largest collection of Roman artifacts uh, from the 5th century, worth about $5 million. Looking for a hammer, he ends up finding this buried treasure uh, from 1,500 years prior. I mean, can you imagine the joy? I mean, all of a sudden you're just looking for a hammer and you find this cache of $5 million worth of these artifacts. It, you know, it, bears obviously into our story in the sense of we often think of Christianity as kind of drudgery and hardship and learning and difficulty and plodding ahead. And sometimes we look at it and kind of just inwardly groan over the nature of what it means to be a Christian. And yet here we have a different picture of it all together. We have this incredible joy, this discovery of value uh, to be a follower of Christ. It's often not sold that way. You know, we're, we, we emphasize counting the costs, and so we should. But we ought to count the treasure, too. And I think that's what he's driving us today. We, we're in the middle of this three-part series on the nature of discipleship in the Christian life. And Daniel led us last week in terms of the doing of discipleship. The discipleship is doing. <clears throat> it, it, is, it is putting your hand to the plow. It's, it's not giving up, it's laboring on, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Well, this week I'm going to talk about the loving aspect of discipleship, the affections, the heart. In other words, what motivates us to want to follow Christ in spite of the costs? And we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we're kind of parachuting in Matthew in chapter 13. Let me just remind you that the gospel itself is a declaration of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as king of a kingdom. It's clear. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. But what we see in his authoritative teaching and his miraculous work, he's actually the son of God. And he's the son of God coming to bring God's kingdom to earth, to begin to restore and reclaim all that has been lost. But here's the snag. That message sells, but then conflict starts coming to these disciples, and they begin to become uncertain. They're confused. What's the deal? I mean, the, conflict, the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is empowering, yet now we have conflict? And so Jesus begins to unwrap for them, to understand the nature of the kingdom, and he does it through parables in chapter 13. In the first parable, we see in the parable of the soils that the kingdom's going to come, and some are going to reject it, but some are going to receive it with humility. 
Uh, but this kingdom that comes will come in the midst of conflict because the next parable is that there are tares sown among the wheat. But this kingdom, in spite of the conflict, is going to have explosive growth. And we find the parable of the mustard seed, the largest plant in the garden. But in spite of the costs, there's a joy. There's a joy over the nature of the kingdom, and that's what we find in ours. We're actually looking at a pair of parables. Uh, these two parables, really, uh, they can be summed up in two points. The first point being discovering the value of the kingdom. We're called to discover what is the value of this kingdom to which we've been called. And, and, then, and then secondly, gaining or, or laying hold of the kingdom really should be at any cost, right? If we understand the value, if we get the value of what Christ has come to do, then there is no cost too high. There is no, there is no sacrifice too great for the value of this kingdom. So there's two points. First, discovering the value of the kingdom. Do you value the kingdom? When you think about the kingdom of God, what is it that you value? Look with me at 44 to 46 again. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man had found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So do you see the first point is discovering the incalculable value of this kingdom. It, it, the story is pretty simple to understand, I think. There's a man, maybe he was walking across the field, maybe he was actually a farmer. Maybe he was a, a farmer for the hire. It wasn't his field, obviously, because he had to buy it. Maybe he was just plowing the field. He plowed the field a hundred times before, but he's plowing the field and he hits something, loud, hard. Stops the plow, and he begins to uncover it and dig around it, and finds that it's a box, and he opens it up. He finds there's gems and stones, costly stones in it. Now, can you imagine? And then he covers it back up, and he goes, and he sells everything he has, because he sees the immense value here, sells everything he has to buy the field. Now, we don't bury treasure anymore in our day, uh, but in their day they did. And they didn't have banks as we have them. And they didn't have safety deposit boxes to put your valuable stuff in. They would often bury it in the ground. There were often wars, and there were, there were these raiding bands of thieves. It was the place that you would save something that was important and valuable to you. We see it in the parable of the talent, talents. He buried it in the ground. That's what they did. And then when he finds it, maybe it was something shiny that he saw. Maybe it was a loud noise. But once he sees its value, then nothing is going to hinder him from getting that, that treasure. You see the same thing with the merchant, the fine pearl. Uh, this merchant's looking for pearls. Pearls were very costly back in that day. In fact, they were more costly than gold. Uh, they, were, they were more akin to diamonds, maybe. The best pearls would come from the Persian Gulf or the, um, or the coast of India. And, and these pearls were so costly because they were so dangerous to retrieve. They were often deep in the water. And so the people searching for the pearls would have to tie weights around their body to cause them to sink fast because of the buoyancy of their body. They couldn't swim that deep. They would sink to the bottom to secure these pearls. People lost their lives. Cleopatra is known to have a pearl worth 25 million, 25 million denarii. 
That would be 25 million days of work, and you saved up all the money to buy the one pearl. So he finds this incredible pearl, and he sells everything he has to get this one pearl. So what's the point? Well, the point is simply this, that the kingdom of God is a treasure. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, by the way, we would look at as synonymous. They're the same. That the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is of immense value that eclipses any sort of earthly value in any of our lives. Uh, The kingdom of heaven isn't explained in the text. Now, it is explained throughout the scriptures, but not in our text. We see that the kingdom of heaven is simply this. It's God ruling and reigning, reestablishing his authority, reclaiming his creation. Think about it with me for a minute. In Genesis 1 and 2, he created a glorious kingdom. It was all good. It was beautiful. He created a a man and a woman to be vice regents over this kingdom. Now, of course, we know the story. In Genesis 3, uh, they did not want to sit under the delegated authority with God. Uh, They wanted to be their own gods. And so they, they reached beyond their measure. They sinned against God. And what did God do? God God moved them out of the kingdom. He put them into the wilderness. And with it, all of us. And you know the wilderness is marked by anger and bitterness, lying, deceit, murder, strife, lust. You see, it is our world. It's a broken world. It's a a wilderness. 11-year-olds die at a parade. That's the way it is in this life. It's always been that way. The reason the kingdom of God is so valuable is because Christ as the king has come. He has come to bring about God's kingdom, a reclamation of all things. This is the first thing Jesus said when he was ministering the gospel as recorded in the gospel of Mark. You know, after John was put in prison, Jesus began began to proclaim this kingdom. It says it in Mark 14. He says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. See, the reason the kingdom is so valuable is because Jesus, the king, is coming to establish a kingdom. That's why Matthew's gospel starts with, he's the son of Abraham, so he's entitled to all the promises as a seed of Abraham. He's the son of David. David was promised by God that he would have a son who would have a king and a kingdom forever. And so Jesus is coming now to bring salvation, to bring restoration. That's why you see in his miracles, he's healing the sick, he's cleansing the leper, he's raising the dead, he's giving sight to the blind, he's rolling back all the wilderness. He's showing this is the nature of my kingdom of which I will be a king. And I am now here, and I'm going to establish this kingdom, and this kingdom is going to come through my own death and resurrection. And that all those who, through faith in me, now enjoy the treasure of the kingdom of Christ himself. So when he says his kingdom is immense value, he's saying to his disciples, there is no greater value than Christ. Christ and his glorious kingdom. I mean, let me be more specific. I mean, the riches of this kingdom are in the forgiveness that we have through Christ. I mean, all of us here carry burdens and shame that we would not want people to know. And yet, he says you're forgiven. You're cleansed. No longer must you carry that burden. 
But not just forgiveness. Reconciliation with God. We're at enmity with God. I know it doesn't often feel that way. We feel like, I'm okay with God. But the way, the way the Bible teaches is that men and women are at enmity. They're enemies of God. And yet God has moved to bring about a reconciliation of peace through the sacrifices of his own son. So now we're reconciled. What that means is now we're no longer aliens and orphans, but we're actually adopted as sons and daughters. That you, you have access to God. This is the riches of the kingdom. You have access to God. You don't need to bring a sacrifice to the front of this room. You don't need a priest to be an intermediary before you. You can go to God in the name of his son. But not just that, you've been given the gift of the spirit. I mean, the riches of the kingdom is that those in the kingdom have been given the spirit of God. The Spirit of God confirming to us that we're his children, sanctifying us, changing us, convicting us, leading us. This is a tremendous gift. This is what the saints longed for. That's why Peter preaches. The Spirit is now given. We have eternal life. If you get the news tomorrow that you have cancer, you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not life, nor death, angels, nor demons, things present, things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. These are the riches of the kingdom. Do you value these riches? I mean, you consider the kingdom of God. To what degree do you value them? The Christian weighs them. The Christian puts down those eternal, glorious riches and then compares them against the shiny trinkets that the world offers. The Christian weighs them. Do you value the kingdom of God? Do you think about it? Do you contemplate it? Do, do you look at the reconciliation with God as something that's significant? As opposed to a new car, new house, better job, new relationship. See, here's the threat. The threat are that there are many good things in this world that God does give to us. And they can often dilute or they can often distract us from seeing the beauty of this kingdom. They can often confuse us. That we begin to think that our happiness and our satisfaction and our joy are going to be somehow tied up in changing the circumstances or relationships or finances or security. It's a red herring. It's a red herring. It, it won't satisfy. You are built for more. You've been built in the image of God and you need God to be happy and to be satisfied in this life. If you're a Christian here, does this humble you? I mean, does it humble you that it is a hidden treasure and that you have found it? Most of us, we've always played the games when we were kids. X marks the spot. That's where the treasure is. But there's never a treasure there. We don't find lost treasure, not often in life. But you found this treasure. Was it by your own ingenuity? No. It's the grace of God that opens our eyes to understand this. I mean, think about it. He even says earlier in chapter 13, he says, to you it's been made known, <clears throat> the secrets of the kingdom. To you it has, but to them it has not. Do you realize that? That God has revealed to you. If you're a Christian here, and <clears throat> you see the value of this kingdom, do you realize that's God opening your eyes to these things? It's not you assessing things and coming up with the determination, this is right for me. 
See, this is what makes it different. This is why the world, many of the family members that you'll be spending time with in these holidays, they don't see these values, these riches as you do. They see the riches of the world, but they don't see the riches of forgiveness and reconciliation. Access to God, eternal life, the gift of God's Spirit. That's why they don't understand it, because they have it, it ought to humble us. I mean, it ought to make us think, God, thank you. I, I mean, the Christian should be the most humble person in the room, because we've been given something that was not ours by right or by effort. So do you see the value of this kingdom? Because that's all he wants us. He wants us to discover the value of the kingdom. If we discover it, then guess what we're going to do? We'll do anything to lay hold of it. And that's what we find here in this text. That this, this man working the field, he sells everything. Can you imagine? You run home, you gather up anything of any sort of value at all. You take, you leverage it all, you sell it all, and you go to buy the field. Or, or the merchant. He's been looking for pearls for years. He understands the nature of pearls. He gathers up his inventory of pearls and he puts them all together and everything else he has and he puts it all together to just get this one pearl. They must have looked like fools. Now some of us will get distracted by this parable and we're going to say, yeah, but was it really ethical of him to do that? I mean, was it even moral? If there's a treasure there and he goes and buys the field, I mean, is that really the way to do it? Well, remember this. You know, the parables can't be pressed. They're, they're stories. Parabole is the two words together in Greek just to throw alongside. They're just trying to help explain things. But I would say this to you. If it was the owner's treasure, he wouldn't have sold the field. Right? And if the guy was unethical, he would have just dug it up and taken off. And he would have taken it. If you say, well, it was somebody else's, he should have tracked it down. How do you track it down? I mean, what was it, the owners before the owners, or two before the owners, or was it somebody else altogether? That's not the point. The point isn't that you can buy the kingdom. The point isn't you know, that he should have figured out where the treasure was. The point is that when he saw the value he recognized that nothing of this world can measure with what he has. And that everything to be offered would still pale in comparison to what you gain when you're reconciled to God and you become part of a kingdom that is now rolling back even wickedness itself. <clears throat> to gain the kingdom. It's incredible. And let me point out a couple things about gaining this kingdom I want you to think about. You see that gaining this kingdom can come in various ways, right? I mean, you have the farmer in the field. He's not looking for it. He found it by surprise. He wasn't looking for the meaning of life. He just kind of clang along and clanked the box and he found it. Or he saw something shiny. That Some people find the kingdom by surprise. It's kind of the way I found it. I mean, my life was sweet. Married, had a good job, new home. Everything was wonderful. Wasn't looking for it. I wasn't in a deep trough of life. I wasn't overwhelmed by the difficulties of life. It was as if he found me. Just, yeah, my heart was struck with the holiness of God. I repented, believed, and walked for. Yeah, it was by chance, as it were. But then the merchant, he's looking. There are people, like a C.S. Lewis. They're hunting for the meaning of life. They're dissatisfied with life. Uh, they're trying all the religions. They're trying all the ideologies and philosophies. They're trying to figure out what makes life tick. Why am I here? 
Do you see? Both find. One by surprise, one by searching. We don't want to ever think that conversion has to come in this certain flavor, in this certain style. God is a God of rich variety, and he brings people to himself in all different means and measures. We never want to hold one over the other. We want to revel in all the ways he does it. Carol, I love hearing testimonies. How did God wake you to himself? Uh, so first we see that gaining the, kin- the kingdom comes through various means and measures. But also gaining the kingdom does take you to step forward. There is a decision. We don't believe in decisionism here as if your decision is singularly effective in saving you. But there is a step that you take. There is a choice they made. They sold it all. They took the opportunity. They went after it. You know, you're not a Christian because you're part of a Christian community, and you're surely not a Christian because you're born into a Christian family. No, you're a Christian because you take the step of faith and repentance, that I do trust in Jesus Christ, I repent of my sins, I'm going to be baptized, and I'm going to walk forward in faith and follow him, along with the saints. So, so there is a decision, but perhaps you haven't made that decision. Perhaps you've just kind of walked along with the flow of the group. You've never actually thought through, no, I, I need to exercise faith in Christ alone for my salvation. I need to repent of my sins. I need to be baptized and to declare to the Christian, I now am one of you. I've been, a, I've been with you, but I really haven't been like you by faith. I would encourage you, if you haven't taken that step, you have to. There is a choice. Jesus said, for you who are heavy laden and burdened, come, follow me. I'll give you rest. It does take us to follow him. We, that is the response we make. So talk to a member of this church or talk to me or, or one of the elders or staff. Thirdly, I want you to see that gaining the kingdom does come by sacrifice. You see them giving up all that they had. Now, it wasn't difficult because of the value they were gaining. But there is a cost to follow him. There's a cost of loss of reputation as you begin to speak about your faith in the gospel. There may be a, a loss of advancement in the, at work because you won't play the company's games. You want to walk in a right ethic. There, be, may, there may be a loss of job. You know, there's a gentleman in Australia, Andrew Thorburn, he was... Uh, made president of this Australian football team, Essendon, I think it's pronounced. But it's not like our football, but it's not soccer. It's a different Australian thing. But he was made president, accomplishing the community, but then the media found out that he was a member of an evangelical church that about 10 years prior preached on the nature of marriage being between one man and one woman, and that homosexuality was a sin, he lost his job. He lost his job over an association with the church that preached the sermon 10 years prior on a biblical truth. There's loss. But is he worth it? Is he worth it? This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
Paul lost standing. He lost recognition. He lost, he lost everything that he strived for. But he, for the gaining Christ, there is a loss, but it has to be measured up with the beauty of what we're gaining. And then, and then I would also say gaining Christ or laying hold of this kingdom is to be with joy. Notice it's in his joy he sells everything. In his joy. He's excited. Remember a couple weeks ago I brought up to you that rich young ruler and uh, in 1 Tim chapter 6, and this rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus in the ministry in Mark chapter 11, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus gives him a few of the commandments to follow. And he says, well, I've kept those from my youth up, thinking, good, I'm golden, I'm set. And Jesus says, well, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And it says that he went away sorrowful because he had many positions, possessions. Here, he's joyful. That man was sorrowful. Are you happy in your faith? Are you happy as a disciple? Are you joyful to give up things in a way to lay hold of a kingdom that is eternal? Are you joyful over that? Or are you resistant? Are you frustrated? Are you concerned? You know, this is really a dividing line among people. Uh, the Christian is satisfied in what he or she has in Christ. The one that's always striving and not satisfied, you need to speak to God about that. You know, uh, Francis Schaeffer was a theologian of the 20th century, started at Labrie, and <clears throat> very <clears throat> popular evangelical thinker, philosopher, really wrote many, many good books that are still relevant and helpful for us today to understand the faith. You know what drove him back to the faith and drove him away from his agnosticism is he saw this joyful, willing sacrifice of the saints in the New Testament, but he didn't see it in the church. And he wondered, what gives? Why is there such willing, joyful sacrifice among these people with Christ, and yet we don't have that same joyful sacrifice? And it drove him back to the scriptures, and it drove him out of his agnosticism back into a full hearted Christianity. Remember this, <clears throat> that there is costs associated with the kingdom of God. There's no doubt. But there are also costs in ignoring it. Be mindful. There are costs in ignoring what I'm saying. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and to forfeit your soul. It's a good parable for us. Is our discipleship marked by a joyful, willing sacrifice? It, there's going to be trials in the Christian life. There's no doubt about it. The way we move through those is by looking at the treasure that this kingdom of heaven is. Let's take a moment and just ask God to give us wisdom on this. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.